Holy Spirit, we invite you to guide us in your word. Lord, I know that you don't, you want us to use our minds that you have given us to let our minds be fruitful as we read. Not just as robots or receivers, but also thinkers. And uh, I ask that you would um, stir us to think over your word, to meditate on your precepts as a body. Guide us into truth. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your word. And Lord, let us, as we go, be doers and not hearers only. So we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to tackle this whole chapter today. Good luck to us. Um, Anybody recall, um, well, allow me to begin with an illustration. I have seen this picture before on a friend, uh, their Facebook page with a fist in the background. And with the fist, it says, resist. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I think it's callbacks. Uh, I haven't researched the fist. I imagine it may be black power stuff from the... From back in the day. It could be another couple of other things. But he was using it in a general picture. Resist. And uh, I sure think that can describe the spirit of our age. Don't you think? Resist. Rebel. As we see the events of what our country has gone through. Not just in the past weeks. But in the past year. You could certainly say that there has been an attitude of resistance and rebellion. In fact, uh, I think my version says that the Antichrist, or the man of lawlessness, and this is not what I'm talking about today, but I think my version says that he will not come unless the rebellion comes first. It's interesting to me. Now, the Greek word is apostasy. Okay, so I think... It's not just the sense of rebelling, it's the sense of falling away. All right? Um, This is the spirit of the age that we live in. And it's somewhat American in some sense as well, right? Um, You think about our history. Um, It went in the course of human events. It becomes necessary. Somebody else can finish that. To to overthrow the government and start a new one. (laughs) So, um, I don't know if that's the... I mean, that's in essence... You know, you can tell how much I've prepped this illustration. But um, we look at our history, and you can see maybe where people may justify their own resistance or rebellion, and this really can't stand. Today I want to talk about that spirit of rebellion, but in a different category, our rebellion or resisting God. Resisting God. What does that look like? Do you recall that kind of rebellion or resistance in your own life towards the Lord? I think, yeah, there's still this tension where the desire to resist or rebel against the Lord to say no to God. Think about my teenage years. Mm. And I think about the temptation to say no, to resist God, to rebel against him and my parents. And oftentimes those two coincided. Mm. Oftentimes they were the same in essence to rebel or resist my parents. And I had godly parents. And so to resist them or rebel against them was, in my mind, pretty much the same. 
But God broke me of that early um, when I had a period of depression and uh, opened up to my parents after about six months about what I was feeling. And where I thought I would be blown into by mom and dad, they embraced me and wept with me. And I remember my depression broke that day. And I learned a lesson early. Don't resist them. Don't rebel against them. They are for my good. And God wants to care for me through my parents. It was life-giving to me. How much more do you think it's life-giving to submit to our Heavenly Father? To not resist Him or the promptings of His Holy Spirit when it tugs at my heart. To hear His Word and to obey what He tells me in His Word. Or to maybe obey that that counselor, that friend, that wise person in your life that you look up to who fears the Lord and to go along with what they say, to embrace that and not resist that. I think often we recognize when we are resisting or rebelling against the Lord. This same spirit of resistance and rebellion was in God's people in the Old Testament. Throughout the Bible, we see this resistance against the Lord. And the spirit of rebellion. We see it up to the point where God sends his own son. And they crucified him and murdered him. Now you remember in context of the book of Acts. The apostles had appointed these seven men to serve widows. And to meet these certain needs in the church. And one of them gets picked out. Stephen gets picked out. And uh, there were charges labeled against him. There was a conspiracy against him by certain Jews. And uh, they accused him. And the four accusations that we come across, and if you look at chapter 6, verse 11, it says, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Hmm. Okay, and then verse 13, they set up false witnesses. This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. So these are the four main accusations uh, against Moses, against God. They are accusing Stephen of rebelling against Moses and God, against the customs and the law, and and even that the temple would be destroyed. He was saying scary things to them. And in chapter 7, we see Stephen is grabbed and he's placed before the Sanhedrin council. And he's giving his account. How is he going to respond the accusations against him. And the striking, this is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And as we read it, we realize you, you start to get the feeling that it's not Stephen that it's, that's on trial. It's the Jewish leaders that are on trial. And an accusation is brought before them of always rebelling and resisting the Lord. And so we will learn um, of, this, of that spirit, that attitude, and how we should respond to it as Stephen recounts the history of the Jewish people and how God had raised up righteous leaders, righteous people, redeemers and rulers, and yet the fathers, the Jewish fathers, rejected them. They resisted them up to the point of the primary accusation at the end of the section. So it's a long section. Bear with me. I'm going to try my best to briefly summarize parts of it as we get into the meat of the passage um, 
um, a little bit later. First off, Stephen begins by talking about the history. So if you want a good scope history of the Old Testament, this is one angle that you can get it. He talks about how the Lord had raised up Abraham, Joseph, and Moses um, to preserve, protect, and to rescue God's people. So let's read about Abraham first. Verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers, fathers, hear me. Pause for a moment. How did he address them? Brothers and fathers. Brothers and fathers. You think about that address. Not not, um, apostates. Rebellious ones. He, He spoke with a kinship because he was one of them. Okay. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession. And his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, and God after that, uh, and said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Okay, so... God raises up Abraham, he's going to have offspring. Oh, by the way, your kids are going to be in a foreign land for 400 years, suffering oppression. But where was that land? Egypt. Egypt, yep, okay. But I'll bring them back to this place and the worship be here, right? Verse 8. He gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Congratulations, you and I. Oh, we almost have covered the whole book of Genesis. <laughs> um, now he's going to talk about Joseph, how the Lord raised up Joseph to preserve his people. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought, or had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So this, uh, in this section, he summarizes the story of Joseph. You may recall the story of Joseph, where there's a famine over the land. The Lord raises up Joseph. What happens to Joseph? He dies. Well, he does die, but before that, he gets sold into Egypt. And what, what was the patriarchs? Uh, you see uh, verse 9. 
Why did he get sold into Egypt? His brothers were jealous. The patriarchs were jealous. This is a theme that Stephen's pulling out. See, though God had raised up a ruler, the fathers were jealous and sold him into slavery. Even the very one that would preserve them. You see a connection here? This reminds me of somebody else the Lord has raised up to preserve his people. A man of sorrows rejected by men. Right? So we're going to see that theme again. Okay? Uh, now he's going to talk about Moses and even how Moses, whom God raised up, was rejected by his own people. Verse 17. As at the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our, fa- our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty. In his words and deeds. Now you recall the story of Moses. How he was beautiful. Um, or favorable. In God's sight. And they put him in a basket in the river. Um, the Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And chooses to raise him as her son. You know what Moses' name means? Drawn out. It means drawn out. Maybe drawn out of water. But it means to be drawn out. And so um, the Lord had raised up Moses, but when he was older, he was rejected by his own people. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. Where he became the father of two sons. So here we see the pattern again. God raises up a ruler, a redeemer. A little premature at this point in the story. He tries to, he thinks that he can, his brothers will realize he's trying to deliver them. When he strikes down the Egyptian and kills him. And they reject them. They said, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? The irony is that the Lord was preparing him. To be the ruler and judge over them. And yet the fathers, the brothers, rejected him. You see the pattern? This pattern, this, this theme, weaves through the entire Old Testament. Hmm. All right? So let's keep going. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness on Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Moses trembled and did not dare to look. 
when the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And so um, the Lord commissions Moses. He shows himself through this angel to give this sure sign that it's the Lord, this burning bush. He also sends him through signs and wonders. And here Stephen is now going to explain this theme in the Old Testament and in the story of Moses in verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. Okay? And so that's the theme. That God raised up this ruler and redeemer, but they had rejected him. Now he explains the confirmations that God had sent this man. uh, By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a brother like me or a prophet like me from among your brothers. Okay, so pause for a moment here. You think about that. Who, I mean, such incredible signs. People long for signs all the time that God would show himself. You know, I was speaking to uh, an atheist yesterday who said to me, uh, God, if there's a God, he's going to have to show himself to me. Right? Uh, people, people ask for this tangible evidence or proof. And we say, we pretend as if that's enough. Right? But when we read the Old Testament, what signs did they see? The bush. The burning bush. What else? The Red Sea Park. The Red Sea? Oh, man. There's a God. <laughs> what else? Huh? All right. If you've been reading in the Old Testament, the earth splits apart and just <laughs> swallows up. She said something. What did you say, Jamie? Oh, well, before the, the pillar of fire. For the, the pillar of fire. The pillar of cloud. And yet, in spite of all these things... How did they respond? They resisted. Yeah. Do you think signs and wonders is what's missing in your life and mine? That God hasn't given enough proof of who he is? No, there's a greater issue. There's a greater problem. It's the human heart. The human heart is resistant to God. The heart is wicked above all else. Who can understand it? You and I need a savior. We need to be made new from the inside out. We need to to remove that part of stone and let that be removed. And for the Lord to place within us a heart of flesh. And that's what the Lord was showing through the Old Testament is their own heart. Their own sin is why they resisted and rejected. Not because God didn't give enough evidence of who he is or signs and wonders. Hey Sam, just a comment about today's society. Um, if signs and wonders, they're so conditioning people with believe the science, believe the science. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. Believe the science. You know, so they'll be able to uh, uh, come up with an answer for any 
uh, abnormal thing that may happen in the atmosphere or whatever, you know, because it's science. Mm -hmm. You know, it's never God, it's science. Yeah, and so that's one, I think there's one way that people resist God in today's society is because of this body that is referred to as science. Now, you got to understand, take a moment on this and then we'll keep moving. When you hear the word science, I think there's two primary terms you need to understand. One is the method and the field of science, which is the study of the natural world using certain methods to validate it, like the scientific method. Science is the study of the natural world. Mm -hmm. But there's another term people use when they refer to science. Well, science says, no, wait a minute. Is science a field? Well, it's something else, too. What they mean is the scientific community as a whole. The majority of scientists today. That's what they mean. And many see that majority as infallible. Some have referred to scientists as being today's high priests. But they don't realize that science was created by God. He is um, the author of the natural world and he knows it best. And many of the sciences were pioneered by Christians who believed that the world had order, that the world could be, that the universe could be measured. Um, that, I mean, that there was a method or a formula or math to this because they assumed order in the universe because they believed in a creator. And so many of the sciences were actually pioneered by believers. So, no, I'm sticking with the scriptures as being the ultimate authority. I believe that this word is infallible, inerrant, authoritative. And uh, there's a quote that I will botch right now. But it says that when the science community finally starts to peak um, the mountain of, um, of um, achievement to where they finally find the answers to life. They're going to find a group of philosophers and theologians who have been there for centuries. Um, the reality is God said, my word is higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than yours. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I would rather be up here. You know what I'm saying? And I think science slowly inches <laughs> and falls back like I'm a sand dune, really. But <laughs> um, So, yeah, thanks for sharing. That's one way that people resist the Lord is they'll, uh, they'll appeal to science. Now, something else I want to point out in, in the passage about Moses, verse 37. Moses prophesied something in Deuteronomy. He said, a prophet like me will be raised up among your brothers. Do you know that verse in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy? Moses said, a prophet will come like me. All right. Now we know this is Christ. This is Jesus. And like Moses, who came to people in their slavery and their bondage and led them out with signs and wonders, God sent his own son. Who, bring, who finds us in our spiritual slavery and leads us out with miracles, signs, and wonders, confirmation of his message. As Moses gave a law at Sinai, the, the ten tablets on stone, so Jesus uh, said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And the New Testament, he gave his law on the mount 
um, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we see many parallels between Moses and Jesus. And just like we see Moses resisted, we see the one, the greater prophet sent being resisted by God's people. So allow me um, now remember the accusations Stephen endured, what they were. Um, what were they? Moses, right? So this is why Stephen spends so much time on Moses, right? Um, Because that was the primary accusation against him. Uh, He also was accused concerning the law and concerning the temple. And so now Stephen is going to show, even when they had the law, even when they had the tabernacle and the temple, they chose to worship other gods, okay? So um, pick up in verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. What's an oracle? Anybody know? Oracle is like a saying. Like a saying. Okay. Living words, you could say. Living words. And he's referring to the Ten Commandments. Our fathers refused to obey him. But thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Okay, so they would receive the Ten Commandments, right? As they're receiving the Ten Commandments, they say they reject the one that God sent. We don't know what happened to Moses. In a calf? Why a calf? They made a calf. A golden calf. It probably reflected some of the deities of their day. Not only that. uh, They turned aside and worshipped the stars. But God turned away and gave him over to worship the host of heaven. As is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephon and the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So the Bible says that they went and they, they started worshiping the heavenly bodies. And you see this in ancient cultures all over, right? They, talk, they worship the sun god. You know, they worship Jupiter, um, Saturn. They worship the stars. You see that today, too. Where do you see that today? The worship of the stars. Astrology. Horoscopes. Um, we're starting to get into the same sort of thing. Um, so let's, now he's going to finish by talking about the tent and the tabernacle in verse 44 through 50. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he spoke to Moses and directed him. To make it according to the pattern that he had seen. And our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Okay, so pause. They had the tent, the tabernacle while they were moving around in the wilderness. You know, God was mobile in the tent. And then when they came into the promised land, 
David's son Solomon built the temple. All right? The place where God was going to have a house on the earth. Now verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So you have to, if you were to get into the mind of a Jew in that first century, they thought very highly of the temple. Okay? It was holy. It was perfect. It was the pinnacle of their religion. still think so highly of the temple? I, they probably still think so. They're having some issues with the temple right now because they haven't been able to rebuild it. But you think about it. The, the apostles with Jesus, they said, they pointed out to him, look at these marvelous stones, right? The beautiful stones that this temple was built. And Jesus responded by saying what? Do you remember? Truly, I tell you, not one stone will be standing on another. Prophesying the destruction of the temple. Now to the Jew, that was, that was the pinnacle to them in the physical sense. We're always drawn to these physical images, aren't we? To worship what we can see. Um, and the Jews were tempted by the same. When Solomon built the temple, he acknowledged that the temple wasn't perfect. He said, this house can't contain you. Who's got 1 Kings 8, 27? Oh, I believe that is me. All right. Sadly, the kids with ADD. <laughs> nope, it's okay. Go ahead and read First Kings chapter eight, verse twenty-seven. Eight, verse twenty-seven. Wait, First Kings eight through twenty-seven. First Kings chapter eight, verse twenty-seven. Okay. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. Right there. Oh, wait, in 27. Just verse 27. Seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary. But they could not... You right. said 8 through 27. I'm reading that. Just verse 27. Oh. So, that's right. But God... But will, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less uh, this house that I have built. Okay. So Moses says he's building the temple, says the highest of heavens can't contain you. How much less this house that I have built. He acknowledged in the building of the most glorious temple that they had that it wasn't sufficient to house the Lord. Who's got Jeremiah 7? 4 through 12. Anybody have that? Go ahead and read nice and loud. Jeremiah 7, 4 through 12. Now this, we see a picture of how the Jews rely on the temple um, and how they almost worship it in some sense. But don't be fooled by those who promise you safety, simply because the Lord's temple is here. They chant, the Lord's temple is here, the Lord's temple is here. But I will be merciful only if you stop your evil thoughts and deeds and start treating each other with justice. Only if you stop exploiting foreigners, orphans, and widows. Only if you stop your murdering. And only if you stop harming yourselves by worshiping idols. 
Then I will let you stay in this land that I gave to your ancestors to keep forever. Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours? And then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again? Hmm. Don't, you, don't you yourselves admit that this temple, which bears my name, has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. Go now to the place at Shiloh where I once put the tabernacle that bore my name. See what I did there because of all the wickedness of my people, the Israelites. Woo! So Jeremiah is confronting the Jews because they felt safe. And they said, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And yet they weren't obeying or honoring God. It's possible to go to church. It's possible to take communion. Yet in your heart, you've turned aside. You've turned to something else. Man looks at the outward appearance of things, but God looks at the heart. And so we see this example, this picture that Stephen is building a case against the Jewish people. Look at our history, guys. Look what we've done in rejecting those who God has sent to us. And now the pinnacle of his sermon, at least as far as he gets, is he now levels the accusation straight at the Jewish rulers in verse 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you now have betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Talk about getting under your skin. So remember, who's on trial again? Stephen's on trial. And yet the accusation is brought against them. Not only did their, and his main accusation here, as your fathers have done, so have you. I recall Jesus saying something along the lines of, fill up the iniquity of your fathers then. You remember before Jesus was killed, how he condemned. Woe to you, Pharisees, confronting the hypocrisy in them. And he was delivered up and crucified. And now, one whom Jesus has sent is leveling the accusation against the religious leaders. That's an interesting phrase. Stiff-necked, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You know, the idea here is this, this you see this stubbornness. But not only a stubbornness. To resist against what the Lord was doing, but also a dullness, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Their ears were dull of hearing. Their hearts were dull in understanding. I think one thing that we can learn 
is that sin and rebellion dulls our hearts and ears. You think about what the writer of Hebrews said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness and were destroyed. When we hear the word of the Lord, when we have the prompting of the Holy Spirit or our conscience bears witness in us and we choose to say no, there's a dullness that comes. There's a dullness that comes over our hearts. And I think we're born into it, into that dullness towards the Lord. Though I think it can grow worse and worse. Like Paul talks about people whose conscience are seared, right? Where they become numb and can't feel anymore because of that continued rebellion and resistance against the Lord. This should make us wary of sin. This should make me wary of resisting the Lord. Now, I think uh, one explanation people will give for why the Jews were, were hardened in their hearts is the point to Isaiah chapter 7. And rightfully so. Jesus said the same. He said, rightly did Isaiah speak of you. And he pronounced this against the Jews. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their hearts, and understand with their, or hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Wow, that was God's pronouncement against the Jewish people. And so Isaiah asks, "How long, Lord?" And he said, "Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people." And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Now let me ask you. Why did God pronounce that judgment against Israel? Why did he say that? That's such a harsh thing to say. To blind their eyes and to cover their ears and to give them a dull heart. Lest they turn. Because they rejected Jesus. They rejected Christ in the New Testament. And I'm asking in the context of Isaiah 7. Now remember, Isaiah, it's chapter 7. Well, I say that's because that's what they chose in the first place. Well, there's an aspect to that, I think. See, this is Isaiah 7. Go back and read Isaiah 1 through 6. And you'll discover they had already sinned and rejected the Lord in some sense. And so you see one punishment that God gives when we sin is he hands us over to it. He gives us further into it. And that's a scary judgment. And I think we read the same in Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God was revealed and because they had sinned and worshipped the creature rather than the creator, therefore the Lord gave them up to a debased mind. He gave them up to defiling passions. He gave them up to their sin. I think this should make us cautious. And temper our hearts to not resist the Lord when he speaks to us. To not resist his word. To not push back when my conscience reminds me of sin. Stephen told them that they were always resisting the Holy Spirit. This verse tells me, I believe, that it is possible to resist the Holy Spirit. 
You know, there's a teaching that says that God's grace is irresistible. And while I know that God's grace is powerful, that His grace draws us, that all that we live by in Him is by His grace, this is an example where it seems that it's being resisted by the Holy Spirit being resisted. Another example of this is in Luke chapter 7, verse 30. Who's got Luke 7, 30? Oh, I think I do. Just did it briefly. I don't want to make a whole thing about this, but I'm just making an observation here. This is Jesus speaking about the Pharisees. Go ahead. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So the Lord sent John the Baptist to baptize, but the Pharisees rejected the baptism of John. And Luke says that the Pharisees rejected the purpose of God, or the will, it's the word bule in Greek, the will of God, the purposes of God for themselves. That's shocking. That's shocking. And yet this, too, is inside of his will, right? The Lord has determined everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of destruction. So when I read this and when I read examples of this, the, the, it causes me to want to humble myself and ask for his mercy. To allow my heart to be sensitized by him and to cut away the sin that brings dullness to my heart and my spirit. Oh, Lord, let us not be like them who resisted you in the past Let us not be like them, Lord God. And so Stephen levels his accusation against them. And it culminates in the accusation that they have murdered the righteous one. And how do you think they respond? (laughs) With warm arms of fellowship, they received him and repented of their sin. That'd be nice. But that was not the case. That was not the case. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city. And they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Hmm. It's interesting that they were enraged, they ground their teeth, and then it says they stopped their ears. I don't want to hear it. When he looked up and beheld Jesus, notice he's standing at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says when he ascended on high, he sat down. Mm -hmm. And now, right now, he's standing. He's standing at the finish line as Stephen's coming in. 
and his eyes are so on Jesus that it doesn't touch him for a moment that they're going to kill him. Oh, beloved, that we could look and behold our Lord and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. My champion, my king, my Lord who has sustained me, who said to me, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. He said, I am delivering you up as sheep among wolves. And they will persecute you. And they will hand you over to kings and governors and to the Gentiles. But my spirit will give you words to speak, to testify. That this will be your time to testify. And Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but then after that do nothing but fear him who after destroying the body can destroy your soul in hell. Fear him, I say. We, you and I are to have our gaze, our minds set upon Christ, on things above. And I believe this will steady you and me as opposition comes. For if they reject the Christ... They will reject you as well. But perhaps there will be some who will believe. As we see, there was a young man watching the coats of those who stoned Stephen. And the Lord had a plan to use him to bring many to salvation. So let us be like Stephen and soften our hearts and repent. Believe upon the Lord and set our eyes upon him. And not like the Jewish leaders that would not bend to the Holy Spirit. Who would not listen but stopped up their ears. A a tree that doesn't bow before the wind will one day snap. And... uh, in the same way, if you and I continue to, if we continue in our sin to resist and rebel against the Holy Spirit, there will be a breaking. As Proverbs 29.1 says, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond all healing. And so let's pray. Father, we do say, search us, know our hearts, test us, and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any offense in us, Lord, and lead us in the everlasting way. Father, we confess our sin, that we have sinned against you. Lord, in the ways that we've resisted, or that we have looked another way, have turned aside in our hearts to Egypt. And Father, we, we ask, we need your spirit to come and soften our hearts and fill us with Christ and to set our eyes upon him and our gaze upon him steadily that we may run with endurance the race marked out for us. Keep us tender before you, Lord. And thank you for the new heart that you have given us. The Holy Spirit, whose heart is to do the will of God and to accomplish it And to work it out so that you can promise us all things work together for the good of those who love God. And that those whom he called, he also, um, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Lord, we know that you are conforming us to the image of your son. And we trust you 
and we continue to look at you in this. In Jesus' name, amen.